At the turn of the last century, most outsiders viewed the dominion of Newfoundland as little more than a high-walled wedge of ancient rock and timeless timber rising out of storm-tossed, cod-filled waters. Cool, bleak, and sparsely inhabited save for a couple of small towns inland and the fishing villages dotting its fringe, the giant island off the eastern coast of Canada was considered one of the British Empire's more isolated and uninviting outposts. An airplane had never touched its stony soil. But in the early spring of 1919, just months after the armistice stilled guns and grounded aero squadrons across Europe, several teams of aviators and mechanics, along with a flock of reporters, began converging on the capital of St. John's. We've come, one late arrival explained to an uncommonly busy innkeeper, to fly the Atlantic. It was about time. It had been six years since Lord Northcliffe, owner of London's populist newspaper, The Daily Mail, had announced a prize of £10,000, $50,000, to the first person to cross the ocean by a heavier-than-air flying machine. Lighter-than-air apparatus, a category that included balloons and all airships held aloft by bags of helium or hydrogen gas, were barred from the competition. Northcliffe's challenge, issued on April 1, 1913, stipulated that the flight be made in fewer than 72 hours and that the takeoff and landing points be somewhere in the United States, Canada or Newfoundland on one side and the British Isles on the other. The rules further stated that the start could be made from land or water, but in the latter case the plane had to cross the coastline in flight. Stoppages were allowed on water and a competitor's craft could be repaired en route. The competition was administered by the Royal Aero Club and was open to any pilot of any nationality who held a license issued by the Paris-based Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, Aviation's international governing body. All that was required were a £100, $500 entry fee, registration with the club 14 days prior to the first anticipated flight, and a suitable plane. At the time Northcliffe issued his challenge, there was no airplane capable of making the crossing, which was just shy of 1900 statute miles at its shortest distance between Newfoundland and Ireland. Then the Great War caused the competition to be suspended. When it was renewed in 1918, the situation had materially improved for interested parties. The prize money, augmented by offers from a tobacco firm and a private citizen, now totaled £13,000, $65,000. The combination of more efficient engines, better instruments, smarter design, and a deeper understanding of aerodynamics promised to significantly increase the odds of any post-war attempt though the obstacles remained formidable, and a successful crossing was by no means a sure thing. A few plucky pilots were persuaded that the right plane just might remain airborne long enough for the twenty to thirty hours needed to cross the ocean. Manufacturers, their eye on the huge commercial potential of hauling passengers, mail, and freight, were understandably anxious to outfit them in such an aircraft. All told, there were eleven competitors in various stages of preparation for the prize by early 1919. All but one were British. In renewing his challenge after the war, Lord Northcliffe had tweaked the rules. Now, aeroplanes of enemy origin or manufacture were prohibited from entering, 
which kept Germany's large and nimble Goethe bombers out of the race. Although there had been reports that France and Italy were preparing to field teams, neither country posted an entry. An accident in New Jersey cost two Swedes their plane, removing the only non-British contender. Because the prevailing winds in the Northern Hemisphere blow eastward, helping to push aircraft toward Europe, all but one of the competitors planned to follow a west-to-east course. The one who didn't was Major J.C.P. Woods, pilot of a single-engine biplane called the Shamrock.